Okay, we'd like to welcome to the show Mr. Paul Angelo. Paul, thank you for being here. No, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, to give a little bit of background, I'll try to make it as brief as possible. Paul, Paul is neither a personal friend nor a family member of ours. He is literally a guy that I worked with at Starbucks in Long Island, New York in 1998 and 1999 when I was 18 and 19 years old. Uh, it was my first job out of high school. Uh, I believe he was my shift, super, shift supervisor, and we just, we just uh, determined that was true. Right. So, so, so you were sort of my boss. Sort of. I mean, I don't know how much of a boss I was. A loose boss, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty loose, pretty loose. Right. Um, so, so in 98, 99, when I was 18 and 19, the only ideology that I had pertained to being in a rock band, uh, drinking you know, copious amounts of alcohol, and of course, girls, which is probably the way it should be uh, for a teenager, you know, just out of high school. Uh, I, I didn't have any political ideology to speak of at that time. So uh, I'm quite sure Paul and I never discussed politics back then. I'm not even, I, I don't even think we ever hung out outside of work because after all, I wasn't even drinking age yet. So it's not like we go to a bar. I think, I think there were a couple of times we went to the diner after yep, our yeah. shift. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, that, that, that's about it. I don't remember. I don't remember going out drinking, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Long Island at that time, even in the late 90s, it was easier to get away with stuff. So I, I believe I did have a fake ID and it, but it was still hit or miss. You know, you just you never could tell. Right. What was the name of your band back then? It's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, so I, can't, I was I, in a band called Shimpyra. Shimpyra. Yeah. <laughs> with was, Justin right here. Justin yeah, was the yeah. drummer oh, really? in that band. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Earlier today, I was trying, I was, I was racking my brain trying to remember the name of that band, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, so funny. Uh, yeah, so, so, so we reconnected on Facebook uh, a few years ago, uh, as so many people do nowadays. Uh, I'm pretty sure we reconnected after the election in 2016, and the reason I say that is because I am sure Paul has some, uh, has a great deal to say about Hillary Clinton, but I don't remember reading anything from him about that. So I'm assuming we reconnected after the election. Uh, the first thing that struck me from reading Paul's feed was that, like me, he was on the left. Uh, but unlike me, Paul was an ardent supporter of Bernie Sanders in the last two election cycles. Uh, not only that, he self-identifies as a socialist, he supports socialism, and he openly encourages his friends to vote for socialists. Uh, obviously, as you guys know, Justin and I both disagree with Paul on the merits of socialism, but this discussion today is exactly what this podcast is supposed to be about, you know, exposing our audience to different ideas and schools of thought without calling each other evil or stupid. So we all have Bernie bro friends, obviously, but, uh, but Justin and I probably have more than most by virtue of the fact that we were both musicians, and Bernie's message seems to resonate really strongly uh, with artist people for whatever reason. With that, uh, ideology, uh, you have, you know, with any ideology, you have a lot of people who sort of jump on the bandwagon. Uh, what struck me about you, Paul, and the reason I asked you to come on the show today was that you seem to be much more intellectual in your analysis uh, than a lot of my other socialist friends. You, know, you hear a lot of people on the right say they just want free stuff, you know, and whether or not that's true, you, you I, I could tell that you had put the time in. You could tell that you put a lot of time into forming your, your opinions and that you had done the research to back them up. You weren't just saying this stuff. Um, another thing that I found refreshing was that I think on one of our first Facebook debates, I remember I prefaced with something like, uh, you know, don't hold this against me, but I disagree with you. 
And you wrote me back and said something to the effect of, you know, it's perfectly fine if we disagree. This may seem like a small thing, but, you know, in today's amped up political climate where dissenting opinions are often met with like shaming and insulting the other person, the fact that Paul said that was definitely appreciated. So uh, to sort of jump right in, I have a question for Paul that may seem like an odd choice of a first question, but I think it will actually reveal some things about Paul's general worldview. I found out recently that he served in the U.S. military. I, 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 like I said, I honestly don't believe I even knew that when we were working together in the 90s. You were fresh out of the military at that point? Yeah, yeah, I got out in um, April of 99, and I believe I started working at Starbucks probably uh, two months after that or so. So yeah, I was pretty fresh out of the uh, out of uh, active duty at that time. So what branch, Paul? Army. So yeah, I, I've seen you, uh, you say on your social media that you don't like it necessarily when people say thank you for your service. And you know, of course, that's a cliche thing that we all have been taught to say by our parents and by society. You know, when you meet someone who's in the military, it's the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, and it is, it is a cliche. But can you give us a basic idea of why you feel that way? Okay, well, you know, I understand that the, why people feel the need to, to, to say that to people who've served. And, you know, I, I, I don't even really recall when, you know, what, what post you're referring to where I kind of like objected to it. It was a yeah, while I, back. I, I yeah. vaguely remember doing that. And it's definitely something that I, I that is, you know, it's accurate to how I feel about it. And, um, you know, I mean, to be pretty straight about it, and I and I like that this is the first question. You guys are coming in hot with this right. question. It's good. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, and it does. It actually will reveal, you know, the kind of view that I have that I, you know, view the world through. I would say that I'm just not very proud of having been in the military and and having having been a especially an active duty uh, service member uh, because of what the U.S. military represents as a. Uh, the mechanism of uh, American imperialism, in my opinion, um, and I experienced a lot of this first firsthand. You know, as you can imagine, um, with my uh, service in um, South Korea, I was stationed in South Korea for eighteen months. You know, my my political um, awakening, if you want to put it that way, really occurred later um, in the Bush years. The Iraq War kind of really. Um, you know, radicalize me. I guess that's the term people use. So, so when you went into the military, then you weren't a self-described socialist at that point. No, no, but I definitely had you know those kind of leanings. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have been able to define it, or or kind of uh, have this discussion at all. You know, uh, then. But you know, a lot of what I, you know, of the feelings um, and um, ideas that I had then were. You know, they hadn't been organized yet, I guess, into a coherent worldview. That begs the question, why join the military to begin with? When I uh, graduated from high school, I went to uh, Binghamton University for a year, and I just totally bombed out. I just, <laughs> I partied too much, I, I, and I, it just did not work out. And, and it got kind of rough for me, so I, um, I was just, I needed something to do, and I just did it. I just kind of went in. They threw a job at me. I was I was completely unconcerned with what the job was, and I took it and I signed up. It was um, rocket artillery, MLRS, it's called, and uh, I was fire direction for the MLRS in the army. And that's uh, basically that's telling the guys who actually drive these mobile rocket launchers coordinates to fire, weather data, manning the radios, and 
kind of being the hub for communication for for the unit, um, that kind of stuff. So, but, but you were just doing drills, right? You weren't actually ever. You didn't do combat. Ever. Yeah, no combat in the '90s. Yeah, but I, I I was out in the field a lot. Yeah, just doing drills. Did a lot of live fires where we actually fired. That's dangerous too. Yeah, yeah, especially in Korea. See, Korea was very. No one wants to go there because it's it's really tough. You only you only you only uh, train in the winter months and in in the mountain. You know, it's a very mountainous country in the north where where most of the bases are located. Um, and you you know you train up in the mountains and it's like dead of winter. I mean, minus fifteen degrees sometimes that kind of thing. So it's just miserable, you know, um, the training and getting back to what I was saying about how Korea I think was the spearhead of where um, I started to kind of awaken about how I felt about things. And what I witnessed there was that the U.S. military was, A, not welcomed by much of the population in South Korea. There's tons of military bases strewn across the country. The environmental impact of it was astounding, in my opinion. And that's really before the environmental movement really kicked off. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I get that. Definitely. Only train in the winter because in the summer, if you drive big tracked vehicles around, you're ripping people's, you know, rice paddies up and stuff like that, you know, on the countryside. You know, the military um, exercises are one thing, but just the impact of all these American service members there, you'd be surprised that a lot of the stuff that the United States, you know, that Americans don't realize are happening essentially in their name in these countries. Like, there were numerous accidents where people would get run over by tanks and other tracked vehicles and, and Humvees. Um, numerous, I mean, more than you can count, uh, sexual assaults, um, situations, various other crimes. And it wasn't just there. I mean, um, uh, Chalmers Johnson, he's an American, the late Chalmers Johnson, I should say. Uh, American historian. I was just going to say, he's, he's sort of in the Howard Zinn camp, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, he wrote a book called The Sorrows of Empire, and in that book, he chronicles a lot of, a lot of this. He spends a lot of time talking about Okinawa, the island of Okinawa, and um, there, there was a very high-profile case right around the time that I was serving. It happened in 95. A 12-year-old girl was raped by three Marines, um, and it caused a massive you know, backlash there, uh, huge protests, things of that nature. And, you know, the big problem is that a lot of times there's no, the, these countries don't have any jurisdiction over, over the people serving there. So justice um, isn't necessarily served in the eyes of, of you know, the, the, the people in these countries that where we have a presence. Well, you know, I, I want to interject for a second because, you know, stay, staying on the military topic, you know, there's definitely... I think we all know that there's collateral damage that comes from military occupation everywhere. But I think there's collateral damage. We see it now with the police force. I mean, I think we all agree at some level that we need to have police officers, but we do sort of innately understand that there's going to be bad ones. Um, and, you know, the, the problem is trying to root out those bad ones. Uh, the, the thing I was going to say is that there are a lot of bad people in the world, you know, a lot of bad guys that want to cause that want to do a lot of harm to the United States and to the West in general. So I understand what you're saying about, you know, not wanting to occupy territories for too long and and, you know, the exploitation of the people who are in that country. But how do you justify the fact that 
we don't necessarily need to be the police officers of the world to stop these bad guys who want to do bad things. Yeah, I mean, I don't, and this is kind of like a libertarian, uh, you know, leaning view here, but, um, you know, I don't think that we should be doing any of that. I, I think that, that our defenses should extend to our borders and no further than that in terms of, you know, having, you know, hard military installations there or any troops at all deployed to those places or in the waters, you know, the, the territorial waters of any particular country. I mean, there are, uh, you know, back to Chalmers Johnson, not to harp on him too much, but in the book uh, that I mentioned, Sars of Empire, he talks about there's, there's hundreds of thousands of American military installations around the world, you know, in, in countries where, you know, in ally countries, as well as, you know, obviously not an enemy, you know, countries where that we consider enemy territory, but, you know, close to those places. And one of the, one of the negative things about this, and there's plenty of, of it, but one of the things is that it, it, it results in a lot of blowback. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we don't, as citizens, connect those dots because it takes a lot of uh, kind of, um, you know, you really have to dive into this to connect those dots because the media is not telling us about these, these kind of things. Within your worldview, what then would be the solution? Because as, as, as Rob mentioned, there is oppression happening in the world. There is uh, mass slaughters happening in the world. There are uh, enemies of our country that want to, you know, destroy what we have built. What would, within your, your worldview and scope, and we'll get into more about what you believe overall, but what would your military solution be then? You know, I'm sure you've given some thought to it to sort of, if we're not policing the world, how do we keep a beat on what's going on around us? Well, see, if, if, we, if we were truly uh, intervening in certain places for humanitarian reasons, and you know, that's often the, the justification for a lot of the things we do. And uh, then we, we find out later on that that was not the, you know, the motivation for these things. I would be all for coalitions with, with other nations in places where there's some humanitarian humanitarian crisis where a military presence an american military presence could have an impact i'm not necessarily opposed to those things the problem is that things that are framed that way aren't usually those things so I, so i'm not saying that we need to have a completely hands-off approach to the world um and and that we should just let atrocities happen for instance the, the, the issue here is that this has been happening for 120 years, you know, since the Spanish-American War. Chomsky calls it manufactured consent. He wrote the famous book. And, and this is the kind of propaganda that we're constantly bombarded with. Let me try to focus us a little more. Uh, my presumption for how you feel when someone says thank you for your service is that you don't necessarily see being in the military as a badge of honor. You see it as almost a badge of, of shame. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, I think that, I, I, you know, shame is, is a strong word, but, but, I, but I agree with that. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have any pride in, um, in my service. One other thing I, wanna, I want to, uh, to say about this whole topic is, um, you know, Donald Trump sort of had instincts, if you remember, in the beginning, before he was president, when he was just campaigning. I think there was a famous interview that I think was Chris Wallace who gave the interview where he said, you know, why do you always give a pass to Russia? And, you know, there's a lot of evil people out there. And Trump said something to the effect of, well, you think we're so innocent? We have a lot of, we've done a lot of bad things too. And the right went completely nuts. To this day, that actually is what spawned the Never Trump movement on the right. And to this day, I listen to conservative commentators who are still talking about that and still very upset that he would say 
something like that. But I think what you're saying is that you don't necessarily disagree 100% with that sentiment. No, I don't. He's trying to get you to say, yes, I agree with Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. That's what he's trying to do. <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey, listen, you know, uh, you know, he knew what he was doing in, in, in 2016. And, and, you know, um, not so much now. I think he's kind of like spiraled out of control these days. But, but that's another story. To piggyback off that, you know, in Clinton's administration, Bill Clinton's administration, he sort of ran also, like Donald Trump, on being more of an isolationist. You know, the idea that we were going to bring our troops home which is a very politically easy thing to run on because every American, even if you love the military, wants our troops out of harm, harm's way. So the idea of bringing them home and keeping them safe is a very easy thing to run on. But I was reading a, a, uh, an article recently about 9-11 that was talking about how we got, I think the title of the article is, How Did We Get There? It was saying how Clinton's isolationist tendencies to bring, take people out of that part of the world, take our troops out, allowed al-Qaeda to sort of fester there, where these bad things started happening. Bush came in and there, he was asleep at the wheel to a certain extent as well. What do, you, what do you say to that, that if we let these kind of problems fester, eventually they end up on our shores, and that that is the reason we need to have such a strong military presence around the world? Yeah, it wasn't that we were in Afghanistan and those territories, it's that we left that caused some of these problems. Right, well, see, I would say that our... our our continued involvement in those places spawns the, the resentments that lead to people being radicalized and being willing to do the kind of things that they do um, yeah, on our shores. For instance, you know, uh, and this isn't a, uh, you know, uh, a pass for Osama bin Laden, but his big gripe, which made him initially declare the United States an enemy, was that we constructed a, an air base on Holy Land in Saudi Arabia. And that we also prop up the, you know, the brutal, you know, regime there. Um, these, well, not that, you know, not that he cares about the brutality of the regime. They, they were not his ally. Therefore, we were his enemy because of those things. Whether that's palatable to people or not is, is what essentially led to 9-11. That begs the question, why, are we, why do we have, you know, air bases in Saudi Arabia, for instance? Does it deter terrorism from from uh from breeding in these places or does it actually you know serve as fertilizer for terrorism you have to understand that there are operations being run on a much more covert level than any of us will know and which is i'm guessing why they need to have some of these bases so close to these terrorist operations i mean i you know my father was an ambassador in the bahamas they, they have opat there and there was you know they have certain uh operations that keep an eye on certain organizations throughout the world and you have to be within a certain vicinity to do that it's my only I mean, my best guess as to why these bases are are incredibly important but do we ask do we ask ourselves why we need to be monitoring anything in these places why why it's our business even let's say there's some country who doesn't like donald trump they they, they see him as a clear and present danger you know to their way of life or whatever it is would we be okay with them you know having covert operations here on our soil? No, we wouldn't. Well, Russia's doing that right now. <laughs> it's just in a different way. It's called Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy for us to, to justify, you know, for, for Americans, I mean, to, to, to justify, oh, you know, we have to do this so we can monitor, you know, monitor these organizations that we see as a threat to, you know, to our way of life or to our safety and security. But to them, 
and 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 the things that happen that we don't even that we're not even privy to or know about these are things that people don't forget you know they and and uh you know i mentioned blowback earlier and that's what uh you know terrorism on our shores is and that's not to justify it it's it's evil it's reprehensible nobody you know i i don't condone any of it but it, you know listen if you don't if you don't want terrorism on your own shores you shouldn't be you know um inflicting terrorism on others it's a, it, it is a nuanced conversation and we can't broad stroke it um but i do think there are organizations out in the world who have declared us an enemy not because of our presence anywhere but because of our values uh, our, yeah exactly our value system and what we've built infringes on what they see as what the world should be and therefore we are an enemy and they've made that clear and that's why you know i think again it, it needs to be nuanced because certain things i think are justifiable and certain things aren't and that's territory by territory but i do think those things exist yeah i mean that's that's a that's kind of a fundamental disagreement we're going to have here i don't believe that that is the motivation of terrorist organizations or or governments who are driven to do you know uh terrorist acts on our shores in in the kind of ways we've seen it's 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 more material than that it's not about you know our values otherwise why are we the only the why are we the only targets of these things why aren't they attacking sweden you know like or something like that you know well england was the subject of uh, some attacks i mean there were other territories that were attacked. i think it, it it depends it's situational but yeah England and the United States were, you know, we're kind of very, you know, tightly bound in, 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 uh, in our, you know, in, in my view, our imperialist, you know, um, ventures. Final note here, I will say is that, um, is that I think there is a lot, there actually, this is the one issue where there's crossover, serious crossover between sort of the Bernie Sanders right or left rather, and the populist Trump right. Because I think there's this, there's very similar sentiments about where, where we fit in the rest of the world, you know, and and ha there's a lot of sentiment on the right that we have been in Afghanistan too long, that we have been everywhere too long, and that we need, everyone needs to come home. And like I said, it's a very easy thing to sell from a political standpoint. Barack Obama was often attacked by the right as you know he, you you might have heard this term apology tour, this idea that he went around the world and apologized for American might and American militarism. Yeah, a lot of people say he did that and, and that he uh, you know, made us look weak and, and, and powerless. I think the problem on the right was, not, not to put words in your mouth, Rob, but the, my issue with it was that he, he treated us like, okay, we're just another country, no less or more important than anyone else, where obviously my views are different on that. Uh, but I think that was a that was part of the problem. Of course. And my question to Paul, though, is so did that did you like Barack Obama's foreign policy or do you think this is sort of a right wing red herring? Because I hear a lot of Bernie Sanders left say, well, why was he dropping drones on innocent people then? So I think there's that this is another nuanced conversation. Sure. Um, yeah, I have uh, I have very strong opinions about Barack Obama. Um, he was a complete disappointment for me. Uh, so so I was. Um, I was a support. I was a big supporter of of his 2008 campaign and his run for president. You know, people tend to forget this, but that 2008 campaign was brutal. You know, uh, that there was, you know, Clinton and and Obama were they were going at each other real hard, and uh, and she wasn't backing down. And I think that I, I have a suspicion about this. No one really talks about this, you know, in a, in any corner of the political sphere. 
Um, but I have a suspicion that he was kind of, you know, told in in you know very very strong terms that for her to back off, he would have to um, go go in a certain direction uh, with a with a Barack Obama administration. And I think that that's you know that's why he, you know. I don't know. I can't say that that's the direct cause of his, you know, drone warfare stuff and and like his foreign policy necessarily. But, you know, you could see it just in the the various appointments that he made, you know, uh, where it was. These are all these are all Clinton acolytes. You know, Trump gets a lot of, uh, you know, credit for this drain the swamp kind of thing. But, you know, Obama promised the same exact thing in 2008 that he was going to that he was going to. He may have even used that terminology, I think. I'm not totally positive about that. It, it wasn't drain the swamp, but he did talk about sort of the D.C. swamp creatures that had to go. So um, let's move on to a little bit more of the ideological stuff. So you openly refer to yourself as a socialist. Uh, what is socialism? And that's correct, right? That, you, that doesn't offend you. You call yourself a socialist, right? I, I do, okay. yeah. So what does socialism mean to you exactly? What it means to me in, in terms of how it applies to our lives as Americans and our country is that I think that that the people should have more control of certain things than the elites and big business and the donor class and, uh, you know, moneyed interests, essentially. And what that means to me is that certain things should be, you know, publicly owned. Anything that's vital to the American people should be publicly owned entities. So uh the internet should be should be nationalized facebook should be nationalized in my opinion it's gotten to the point that amazon is so so powerful and so vital to our to our actual i mean it really is though like it, you, rob you, you've mentioned in uh, a couple of times in our discussions about about how vital they are to the distrib distribution networks in this country especially now with the pandemic it's never been more prevalent as 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 you could tell by the stock price, right? And to me, it 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 is unacceptable that that a, that a few people should be profiting off something that's so vital to to the infrastructure and and um and the daily lives, frankly, of of the American people. I understand that sentiment completely, and it actually segues great into our our next question we had, which was, can you explain why you believe that giving this sort of power over to the federal government and allowing them to control the means of production will be better for freedom and equality in the country. Uh, because I'd rather have uh, I'd rather have government bureaucrats handling these, you know, in charge of these things than people with a profit motive, frankly. But will you re will you recognize that when there's a profit motive, you get not only better products, but you get more ingenuity, you get everything's more efficient. Um, whereas if we look throughout history, when government controls something, and I know this is sort of a right wing talking point, government sucks at everything. You hear them say that all the time. But the truth of the matter is, if you look at government services, they do lag behind uh, private the private sector services because the private sector is driven by profits, which makes everything so much better. Well, I would say that's debatable because, uh, you know, I've encountered way more red tape with uh, private companies than I have with uh, with with government entities. The U.S. Postal Service is is uh, one of the most popular entities in the entire country. 
and you know it manages to deliver mail to every corner of the country if it were run by a private corporation are they going to be delivering to rural communities without you know extraordinary prices of course not it's just it just would not happen they either would not have any postal service or they'd have higher prices which is unacceptable given that we've had you know centuries of you know hey you put a stamp on a letter you can send it anywhere in the country what is the insurance that people and this has been the downfall of of a great many areas where socialism has failed what is the insurance that people won't still because they're people act in their own self-interest even in uh, a system where things are nationalized or federalized let's say the federal government takes over amazon there are each person in power whether from the top on down will have an opportunity to act in their own uh, self-interest as opposed to for the greater good. How does that fall into what you're talking about? Right. Well, the difference would be that, that the government, in theory, is, is accountable to us. We can hold them accountable via the ballot box or, or forming an organization to, 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 you know, to lobby for a certain thing or to, to advocate for a certain thing. Whereas a private company, there is no such thing. I, I have no way to lobby or, or, to, or to appeal to Jeff Bezos for yeah, something. Yeah, you do. That, you could stop buying their products. Yeah, but, but, but the problem is that we can't do that. Like, the, like the, the people, this, this goes back to, you know, certain companies or certain sectors of the economy becoming so vital to our, our day-to-day lives that you, you can't vote with your dollars, you know, uh, quote-unquote. Or, you know, take that approach. You're, you're kind of, you know, you know, people don't like to think of things this way. And, and, but, you know, to use the word for, you're forced to use Amazon. You know, you're not. You don't have to, right? But the fact remains that, that people are going to do that. Because, because right, because, because the way things have been structured, the way they've gone in the past three decades or so, is that you can't go to, like, your, your mom and pop store downtown and buy, you know, buy a pillow necessarily or something, you know, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to go on Amazon and you're going to get it delivered to you the next day or two days later. You know, it's just what's going to happen. There has been a lot of demonization of money in general from people like Bernie Sanders, but I think have inculcated a lot of these values into uh, probably people who are younger than yourself who don't necessarily ha- haven't done as much research as you and just think like, yeah, why should there be millionaires? Why should there be billionaires? You know, who needs that kind of money? I see this on so many Instagram posts right now. Yeah, well, you know, the interesting thing with Bernie, and we're, we mentioned this on our podcast once, that, you know, it started off with the billionaire class shouldn't, shouldn't exist, and then it, it morphed into the millionaire class shouldn't exist. And then I started thinking like, it's just a matter of time before he starts coming for 200,000 and 100,000. Where do you draw the line? I hate the slippery slope argument, you know, usually, but this to me does seem the the point I'm making is that when you have somebody like Jeff Bezos who gets demonized from both the left and the right, and I think to myself, this guy engage it you know, whatever you think of how he treats his employees. Well, you know, and that's a whole other topic altogether. He has built a company that nobody else built. He had an idea that nobody else had. He engages in millions of voluntary exchanges every single day. He doesn't force anyone to buy his product. And he has earned that money. Now, I am because I am of the left, I do believe he should pay a ton more taxes. And his corporation should as well. But the idea of saying that 
Like, I don't understand how you could say someone like that is a bad guy or he's exploiting America. Just because he's built something. I mean, there's the famous photo of him sitting in his little office with the Amazon, the, the handwritten Amazon.com banner to build from that into such a, you know, massive corporation. Grew up a middle class guy. It's, it's not elite. He, he built it with his two hands, you know. But see, all that stuff is 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 irrelevant to me. Like, I don't care about Jeff B. I don't think I don't think he's a villain. Like, I don't view him as a villain. I just don't think that people should hoard money. That that's 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 the bottom line. I don't think like, for instance, this was a this was a headline last week. He made 13 billion dollars in in one day. Right. Um, and you and, you know, Rob, you mentioned that you think he should be you know, they should we should tax the hell out of him. Yeah, that that's common ground for us. That that's what that's all. That's frankly. That's all I want. We, but we're, we probably disagree on, on the degree to which. That's my next question. Is, is it back to what Rob was saying originally is, where is that line for you? How much money is too much money for one person to make, in your opinion? Okay, that's a good question. And um, As an auxiliary to, to that question, answer it with also with this. Um, you mentioned hoarding money. Uh, if it's money that's not your own and it's theirs, who are you or anyone on the left or anyone in general to say what they should be doing with their money? Do you find something immoral about that? Yeah, I do. I think it's immoral when we have people literally, there's people who literally die in the streets. <laughs> that, 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 that's all I need to know, to know that someone having so much money that they could never spend it in, in like a hundred, more than a hundred <laughs> lifetimes. You know, is is there's something wrong with that? Like, I I just it's not it's not about again it's not about Jeff Bezos and what what kind of guy he is and he's playing by the rules is the thing. Like, there's there's nothing illegal about what he's doing. You know that that's you know I don't want to get on a tangent here, but that's why I don't like you know uh, the the some some Democratic politicians who are considered progressives, uh, and I'm thinking of Elizabeth Warren in particular. Uh, they want to they want to talk about corruption, right? Their thing is corruption, you know, oh, these people are all corrupt. The problem is that they're not corrupt. They're playing by the rules. These are the rules of the game. Jeff Bezos isn't a criminal. He's just doing what he's allowed to do, you know, under, you know, under the, you know, the way things are structured economically in, in, in our society, in this country. As I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of people who struggle like in, in, in this country. I mean, and it's not just people dying in the streets. It's not just that. And, you know, you know, you mentioned Bernie, he, you know, he bangs on this drum constantly and people on him for it. They think that he's this, you know, one trick pony, but he does that because it's, it's the core problem. And to me, the core problem here is that you can work, you can be a full-time, you could have a full-time job in this country if you're just like a, a regular, you know, wage earner. And it's still not enough to make ends meet. It's still not enough. In fact, for a lot of people, you know, people talk about a $15 minimum wage. Even if you're making $15, it's not enough to, to, per hour to, you know, 40 hours a week to, to, to make ends meet in, the, in this economy. And, and if, you, if you're going to have that, right, to me, you also can have people who are just, you know, just making so much money. I mean, like a handful of people who make more than, who own more wealth than the bottom 50% of the, you know, it's a statistic here all the time. Bernie loves it. Bernie will also say, you know, in the richest country in the world, there shouldn't be, and he always will say, shouldn't be, uh, you know, people living on the street. But the problem is that 
just because Bernie Sanders declares something doesn't mean it doesn't mean it just goes away. You know what I mean? Like, um, and I just, I'm just not sure. I, I, what doesn't sit right for me is the idea that we that somebody earned their money and in, in, did it by engaging in voluntary exchanges of a product, and that somebody comes in then and says at the 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 point of a gun, by the way, uh, says to them, "You need to hand over eighty percent of your money." Because we have homeless people on the street. And so we, we think we should take all your money. Some of whom have chosen this lifestyle. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's no fault of their own that there's homeless people that exist. You know, and, and, and I think a lot of leftists, where, where leftist thought runs into a problem, is that a lot of leftists are, are scared of authoritarianism. They don't like police or law enforcement necessarily in general. But you have to remember, with every law that you pass, especially tax law, there is a government gun at the end of those laws. So if you don't pay your taxes, or if you refuse to pay a certain percent, eventually guys with guns come to your house and put those guns in your face and tell you that they're going to take you to jail. So we, uh, you know, we have to be really careful about, that's my opinion at least, we have to be careful about how much we make these kind of things into law because it, that's the slippery slope. Eventually, we're, if you're making $200,000 a year, we're coming for 150 of it. You know what I mean? And that's what I worry about with this kind of thing. Sure. But, but I, you know, what I always think of with this is, and, uh, you know, like, again, it's not just about people dying in the streets, homeless people, I, you know, the working poor and not even just working poor, you know, even just the, the you know, middle class people are, 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 are stretched real thin. And they have been for a long time. But, you know, back to, you know, your point, Rob, about the men with guns confiscating your money. We used to have an over 90 percent, you know, top marginal tax rate. Yes. But a lot of people were putting their money off uh, overseas at that point. You know, yeah, yeah, maybe. But but the thing the is, effective like, tax rate was about the same. It really was. I mean, from what I've read, at least. Well, I don't know about that, because they used it. It was, it was literally like 92 percent, I think, before before Kennedy. Yeah, we were uh, also coming it. off of World War Two. Um, so it, it, there were different circumstances for sure. Um, I'm, you know, and again, I'm, I'm a liberal. So I, I, I believe in that democratic mantra of tax people at a, an appropriate rate. I think it's absolutely ludicrous. I mean, if you remember the, the Buffett rule, Warren Buffett, where my secretary pays more in ta a higher tax rate than I do, like that has to change. That was the Buffett idea. Trickle down economics is complete horse. And I'll say that to Jay, even though he might believe in that kind of philosophy. But uh, yeah, we agree on that. I'm just still not sure 90% would be an appropriate rate because I don't want the government telling me how much money they think is enough money. So that goes back to Justin's question. What is enough money? I, I gotcha. And I, I, you know, I can't put, I can't put like a figure on it necessarily to, to answer Justin's question, you know, about the specific amount. I, I don't know if I have a, a specific amount to, to, to put on that, you know, and the, 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 all I want, and, and, and these are just illustrative examples that are given like that, you know, like, um, you know, someone shouldn't be, you know, we, we talk about these very wealthy individuals and we use them as, as an example of like, extreme wealth and why should this occur and the reason we do that is because you can take you know even just like a, a like a small portion of their wealth that they're literally hoarding i mean i know you guys maybe are uncomfortable with that terminology but that's what it is if you, if you have a shitload of money sitting there that you're never ever going to use except to maybe pass down to your 
you know, your, your children. I mean, you don't want your 10th generation to go to college. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I want everybody to go to college. I, 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 you know that I want, I want free college. You know, that's, that's my, that's my point is that like, why should only certain people enjoy that kind of, of, of peace of mind? That that's what I think is a big problem. I mean, you know, Rob, you mentioned like, why is it okay to, for, you know, you kind of, you kind of framed it in moral terms, right? Like, why should someone be able to come and tell me this is too much, right? At the same time, why should we, why should we be okay with, with people struggling just so those people can, you know, can have this extraordinary amount of wealth? The reason is if they earned it uh, honestly by, again, engaging in free exchange with the public, then I don't see anything wrong with that. I do see something wrong with them having a 5% tax rate or in Bezos case, I think Amazon doesn't pay any taxes when all is said and done. I definitely agree with that. I think, again, this is one of those topics, there's so much nuance that we could have an entire three-hour discussion on this and still not get to the bottom of it. Well, see, here's the, here's the thing. What, like, for me, it's the level of, of pushback on, on things that are not extraordinary asks, in my opinion. How is it that Bezos or whoever it might be made this money legally? Whether they earned it, you use the word earned, whether they earned it is very debatable. I'm not sure anybody earns $13 billion in one day, for instance. Well, if we call earn, recognize a need in the mar marketplace, right? There's some luck involved in that, but recognize a need, exploit that need, build something to fill that hole. And then, I mean, if that's what we're calling earned. I take your point. Yeah, I take your point. I think that the problem is, and the, the reason why I think there's so much friction right now across the political spectrum. As I said, leftists don't even agree completely on this, on all these things. Yeah, I'm a socialist, right? Yeah, maybe even, I'm, you know, I, I, like my end goal is like, you know, full luxury space communism or whatever the kids call it, right? Sounds great when you say it that way. Utopian, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. See, I know, I know how to sell it to you. So, <laughs> no, but you know, even if that's my end goal, right? I know that that's not something happening in the near term, right? Why can't we at least have so something? Like to just today, uh, I, I, someone, a friend of mine posted on Facebook about um, how it was something about infant mortality rates or something or or and, and how the United States ranks. I don't remember exactly what it was, but we, we rank were just low. talking about this. We, we rank, rank very low. Yeah, we rank low in something that it's completely unacceptable for this. And, and, country and by the way, also, so while we're on the subject, maternal right. mortality rates is also yeah. a big problem. Yeah, right. And, 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 and I, you know, I, I put a co comment in there, you know, saying that it's, you know, we don't have, there's nothing like, you know, parents with children don't have, you know, people with children don't have anything. There's, there's no universal childcare. There's no universal, you know, early education. There's, there's no universal healthcare, there, nothing like the, the, that's my, that's what really, I think is what drives you know what, what would you guys mention some of the the rhetoric of like you know confiscating people's money is that it's one thing to have rich people right and and like but to maybe also have a very strong i hate the safety net word because it just seems so dated to me but it's you know a system of care is essentially right okay about. system of care right like there's none of it you know like so so at some point there has to be some balance is i guess yeah, what i'm getting we, at we are a country that does not take care of its citizens as much as other countries but i think it's also a product of the fact that we are so large with so many different facets and also 
um it's it's uh, tradition in sort of the the mold of this free market capitalist society that we live in maybe there is a happy medium but i think that that uh, you know this will segue nice into the next question we have for you which was you know when american leftists speak fondly of socialism those on the political right will always bring up countries like Venezuela, which I'm sure you, you're sick of hearing that because they say that all the time as sort of like a cautionary example of what socialism leads to, which is poverty, starvation, and of course, authoritarianism, which I touched upon. Again, the barrel of a gun is a very, the government gun is very, very strong. Um, you know, uh, and that's what scares a lot of people about this. So leftists will usually say that true socialism, you know, quote, true socialism hasn't been tried correctly. So is there a country in the world that you feel models the sort of brand of socialism that you think we should move towards here in the States? And what are the differences between Venezuelan socialism and that of the socialism you favor? That's a good question. I, I don't know who you're talking about necessarily. I know, I know people do do this. You know, they, they, oh, that, but that really was, that's, they didn't do it right. They didn't do socialism right. I don't prescribe to that at all. I have a totally different view on this. What I think is that, that and this gets back, this ties back to our, our, how we started our discussion tonight, and that is that the United States, through its, through its might, literally stops socialism from succeeding in certain places. And they do it through not just the, the might of its military and the threat that that poses, uh, or the CIA doing covert ops, which they do do, and specifically they have done in Venezuela, but also in you know, economic sanctions and, and financial, financial sanctions, which are, have been imposed on Venezuela. But I've come prepared for the Venezuela question, and I have some statistics that, 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 that refute that it doesn't work, because before oil prices dropped and, and, and the mismanagement of, the, of, of uh, the currency there in Venezuela. That was a big problem there. Right. Um, there, there were a lot of uh, gains that, I mean, very significant gains that Chavez was able to, to make. And if you guys would allow me to, I know it's not the coolest thing to just like rally off some... Uh, no, no, do facts. We do yeah, it all we the do time. It often. We do it all the time. All right. Well, here you go. That I have some statistics about what happened under Chavez. The lowest inequality level in the region, measured by the Gini coefficient, uh, reduced inequality uh, by 54%. Inequality meaning economic inequality? Yeah, uh, and economic inequality as defined by the Gini, uh, you know, under the Gini coefficient. It was reduced uh, from 70.8% in 1996. And uh, extreme poverty reduced from 40% in 1996 to 7.3% in 2010. And that was even after, you know, the the attempted coup backed by the United States government in 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 2002 against uh, against Chavez and their oil embargo, which also um, had a severe impact on the economy. Even considering those things in 2010, that's you know the the poverty levels had been reduced to those to those uh, to that degree. 20 million people have benefited from anti-poverty programs called Misiones. 2.1 million elderly people. Uh, have received old age pensions, had received old age pensions, which is which retro represents sixty six percent of the population, while only three hundred eighty seven thousand people received pensions before the current Chavez, uh, or the then Chavez government. Uh, tuition free education from daycare to university, seventy two percent of children attend attended public daycares, and eighty five percent of school aged children attended school in two thousand ten. Uh, Venezuela placed second in Latin America and fifth in the world 
with the greatest proportions of university students in 2010. These are all you know, uh, statistics from 2010, because it was prior to Chavez dying and, and um, Maduro taking over. Oh yeah, they also, this, is, this one really struck me when I, when I read this, is that they tied with Finland um, as the fifth happiest country in the world in, in, in 2010. Uh, that was a Gallup poll. I always found that just sidebar, I always found those Gallup polls to be interesting because like, how do you actually, how do you determine that? Does they, right. Are you happy or not? Yeah, I'm super happy. It's like, check. Yeah, yeah, no, but they, they, oh, fin, Finland is always in, the, it's like Finland and Iceland are always in the top. It's like, yeah, of course they're happy up there. Everyone's blonde and, you know. Right. I think that's that. And that's what struck me about that is that you wouldn't necessarily think Venezuela was anywhere near that. And, and you know, and take that statistic, you know, with however you like, you know, like I, I agree. Like I, I these those kind of polls, I don't always, you know, think that I necess they necessarily reflect anything in particular. But, you know, it, it, it that is was a striking uh, uh, statistic, I thought. Um, let's see. Infant mortality dropped from 25 per 1000 people in 1990 to 13 out of 1,000 people in 2010 under Chavez. 96% um, of the population had access to clean water, it's, uh, which was one of the goals, one of the main goals of, uh, of the Bolivarian uh, revolution there. Let's see, 1998, there were 18 doctors per 10,000 inhabitants. And in 2010, there were 58 per 10,000 uh, uh, inhabitants. And the public health system had 95,000 um, physicians. I won't bore you with too many more here, but let's see. I have, uh, so it took four decades for previous governments to build 5,081 health clinics, but in just 13 years under Chavez, they built 13,721, which is a, which represents 169.6% interest um, increase. And I'll say that again, so that uh, that was 169.6 increase. And in 2011 alone, 67,000 Venezuelans received, received free high-cost medicines for 139 pathologies, conditions including cancer, hepatitis, osteoporosis, schizophrenia, and others. And there are now 34 centers for addiction in, uh, in Venezuela. So, so my, my only point in rattling off all those statistics is that Chavez had a ton of, of, uh, of, of success in in essentially ending poverty in Venezuela. Can I push back on that a little bit? While while it's it's undeniable that all of the statistics you just read are true, right? I've read the same the same studies. He did so in destroying the economy and essentially taking he he did risk redistribute the wealth, but he also created a massively high inflation uh and essentially broke the economy by taking those that oil money and and distributed yeah. it and did it by the way on the ba on the back of class warfare which was really that one of the keys of that you know riling up the and i think bernie sanders does this too not to that extent but riling up the the uh, middle and lower class uh, citizens about the idea that there's too many rich people well i mean you know the, the the class the people you're talking about being riled up are the vast majority of the people you know and it's the same here and i and i think that that's what should matter and yeah, uh, you know, in terms of of him destroying the economy with with inflation, that mainly occurred uh, post Chavez uh, under Maduro. But um, well, the, the, you could say the effects were seen post Chavez, but all of what had happened during his his rule 
ended up causing those issues. Which, which I guess my response would tie back to um, earlier in when we started discussing Venezuela, in that that various mechanisms that the United States and our allies use to to prevent countries like Venezuela from restructuring their well, uh, their their debt and things like that to get out of these situations. And then, and the the purpose of that is to then be able to frame the situation in these countries as so dire and terrible that there an intervention is needed, and and also to you know fuel the idea that look you know socialism is a disaster it doesn't work but really what happens is that these these governments and these countries are cornered to the to an extent that they cannot get themselves out of out of you know um circumstances right which 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 other countries you know other countries you know endure inflation or have uh economic meltdowns you know which which i guess maybe is a good way to for me to segue into um if we're going to scrutinize you know, countries that are socialist countries or countries that supposedly practice socialism for, you know, economic hardships that they may, uh, that, that may occur frequently. Why don't we apply that same, that same approach to, you know, our, our capitalist economy here in the United States, which undergoes frequent massive meltdowns, which, which are the result of the, you know, the short-sightedness and sometimes outright criminality of 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 the people who are sure, interested the, the, the great recession is absolutely an example of what you're talking about yeah yeah 100%. But, but you're talking about crony capitalism there which is sort of Correct. which is a different yeah thing. You, know, you know i know that that's i know that that's see you know this is funny because <laughs> because you mentioned how like a, a, a like a, a rhetorical trick of socialists is to be like well you know this country wasn't really doing socialism right. They just they they you know they just messed it up and they're just you know authoritarian jerks or whatever. Like the crony capitalism is kind of like the you know sorry I, I meant to do the air quotes. The crony capitalism is the little like escape hatch for for capitalists to excuse really what in my opinion are are the inevitable you know fruits of 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 capitalism at least the way we we practice it where we give wall street and bankers enormous power like enormous power to do things that we ordinary citizens can't even make odds and ends of you know like you like you know the 2008 you know i know is the greatest example of that with 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 all these different financial mechanisms and Things that you could not even begin to wrap your brain around. Makes you feel like a rat in a lab kind of thing. I mean, it's easy to say that too much power in the hands of any one entity is a problem, which is why, you know, it confuses me that you want to take that power and put it in the hands of the government. Exactly. That's the whole thing. Well, again, again, at least the government is at least the government is accountable to us to a certain extent. Uh, You know, Goldman Sachs is not accountable to me. Yeah, I get that. I get that. But I think what you're also not what you're ignoring sort of conveniently and socialists do this is that if you look around the world, countries that have embraced capitalism have uh, I mean, capitalism, the system of capitalism has object uh, has taken people out of abject poverty throughout the world. I mean, we if you just look even in the course of our lifetime, look at what's happened in China. I mean, China's a communist country, but the reason they're ha- ha- they have such a thriving middle class is because of capitalism. I mean, directly. If you look, you know, Bernie will always point to the the uh, Nordic countries, you know, Sweden and Denmark. 
these are countries where if you go there, they are offended by the idea that they're socialist countries. They actually consider themselves capitalist countries with very, very big social social safety nets, which that's a, to- that's a whole other topic in, in and of itself, because that requires a lot of tax dollars as well. But the idea is that they, these countries have all, pro- the world has prospered because of capitalism, which has given, put the ownership in the individual rather than giving that ownership to government bureaucrats that were unelected, that, that are unaccountable, that get paid personally. You know, you know they, they, they frankly don't get paid enough to even care or to move the product that they're trying to move. And that, that, that's the whole argument with giving that much power to the government. Sure, no, I, I, as I said, I get, I get your take on it. I just, I, I'd rather have that power being in the hands of someone accountable to me than someone who is not. And who will, here's, here's the issue, here's the issue. Like, I'm not an unreasonable person. I, I know, and I mentioned earlier, I know that I'm not going to have full-on socialism or communism in my lifetime, or probably even an, an, two of my lifetimes, you know? What, what the problem is, is that, and this is, this is Bernie's thing, I know, like, you know, it, like, he gets a lot of from from people on the left for, like, they think he's, you know, maybe to you guys, he's like, you know, an extremist. But on the left, he he is seen by many as as kind of like, you know, a little bit too, um, a little bit too cozy with the idea of leaving in place capitalist structures, you know. And I'm in line with him on that, to, frankly. You know, I, I think that my my thing, and I mentioned it earlier, is the lack of balance here. Like, OK, you're saying that that capitalism has lifted people from poverty. Right. And I just went through a whole list of ways that socialism lifted people from poverty. Well, money lifts people from poverty. Let's just if they get it, if they get it by way of the government or if they get it by way of themselves, they're going to be they're going right. to create the you know, distinction, it, though, Paul. The distinction is that socialism might lift people out of poverty and you might have more equality. And by the way, I hate the term income inequality because I, I don't think it says anywhere either in. Uh, the Constitution or the Bible or anywhere else that incomes are supposed to be equal. I don't I don't like that idea because I think there are people who just work harder, who come up with better ideas, and those people should make more money. So when you're talking about the socialism that lifts people out of poverty, I think you're talking about everyone being equal, but equally miserable. You know what I mean? So you don't have everyone is sort of middle class. If you look at Cuba, for instance, Cuba has a very high capital, uh, happy rate as well, supposedly on the happiness scale, whatever the hell that is. But they're still driving around in 1979 Chevys because so so it's sort of like you give up uh, that economic happiness for status quo, middle of the road, middle class. And, you know, some people the, the great thing about America is that we don't have to do that. We could be as rich as we want to be. But we can't, though. That's that's the thing is, is that we can't. It's it's mythology. If you're born poor, you're gonna you're most likely gonna stay poor. It's it this is this is the fallacy of American capitalism, is that is this idea that you as an individual can can lift yourself to some grand heights. And some people do that. But the the but the people that do that are, are such a small, small proportion of this country. The most common story is that if you like I mentioned I said it already, if you're born poor. You're more likely, more than likely, going to be poor your entire life because it's entire. It's it's really difficult to pull yourself out of that for for various reasons. And this isn't one particular person's fault. It's not, you know, 
Mark Zuckerberg's fault or Jeff Bezos's fault. As we, as I mentioned earlier, they play by the rules. They're doing what they got to do. But you, you know, another fallacy, in my opinion, that you that you you know that you just mentioned, Rob, is that is that um, you know people work hard, and that's how they got to these you know to this extraordinary level of 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 wealth and comfort. I don't see it that way at all. I think that it's a combination of ruthlessness, a little bit of luck, um, you know, um, being in the right place at the right time. It's all hard, hard, hard work's in there too. I mean, I've been sure. You know, I've been, I'm not. I'm not saying that these guys didn't work hard at some point in their life, but but when it gets to the point where you're just sitting back and you're just and and the money is pouring in and you, and it, just because of how how things are structured in our economy, where that's just a thing that happens, and 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 meanwhile, we're okay with the people I just mentioned that are born poor and will stay that way. And we're not even willing to 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 give at all anything to those people. And this is Democrats and Republicans. You know, this is not a like this is not like, hey, the GOP, they're so evil and they're like preventing these things. I don't buy into that that thinking at all, because I know and I've seen what you know, like, let's talk about, you know, universal health care for now, for for instance. Um, and you know Obamacare. So Obamacare and Robin, I think, have already debated this. You know, Democrats defeated the 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 you know the public option in Obamacare. It wasn't the it wasn't the ghoulish GOP that did that. Of course, they they were happy about that. But like it was Democrats who you know Max Baucus in particular in in committee killed the, the public option twice. And then beyond two thousand you know two thousand eight and two thousand nine. I think it came back as a as a proposal in 2012, I believe, something like that. Yeah, it was and Lieberman, it, Lieberman. Who, yeah, and again, who, who it was defeated it. in committee by Democrats. So it, it's it it's amazing to me that we can't even have a you know like the smallest gesture. So Paul, socialism uh, right now is tied in with general sort of wokeness and social justice. However, you've expressed uh, on your Facebook and to Rob a dislike of the vapid wokeness that we see coming from a lot of the Democratic Party in Congress and some of the young people who are, to, you know, right now down the street from from where Rob is right now, holding up picket signs in the streets. Can you explain what you think real social justice includes and how socialism would help achieve that justice? Gotcha. Um, good question. And uh, this is something I've been really. This has occupied a lot of my like brain space lately. Um, and uh, I mean, first of all, I just want to make it clear that I, I'm 100% behind, um, you know, the, the 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 kind of revolt against uh, uh, against police violence and systemic racism in policing. 100% behind that. It's been something actually that I've been passionate about for for like over a decade now. You know, you know, the slogan is defund the police. You know, that that's something I'm, I'm I've been saying that for a long time. I think that we have. A, uh, I mean, I just want to preface what I, what I'm you know, what I'm about to say with this because I don't want there to be any confusion because this is really the core of what upsets me is that is that is that you know things are you know taken out of context and people discount like all all the context of a person throw the and, baby out with the bathwater yeah you know so I want to be clear how where I stand on this before I go into trashing some of the the things that annoy me. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I'm all for this, you know, like I, I think that, uh, you know, that, that, um, policing has devolved into, uh, something that's a completely out of control element in our society. It's they they're, they're, they're like, 
police policing in America is like its own gang kind of thing. And um and and the American public is seen as like an adversary to to police rather than, you know, um the you know, the people that they're supposedly protecting and serving, you know. So and you know, I think that systemic racism is a real thing. It, um and it's and uh you know, I'm on board with all that. But what I'm seeing is that there has been a, a a turn in the past, you know, I'd say like 10 years or so towards um, a lot of, uh, how do I put this? Wokeness. Yeah, yeah, the, the, right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the wokeness where it's, where, where it, it's, 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 on, it's a very shallow kind of approach to social justice. And you could, you could even say that the Black Lives Matter movement has morphed a little bit and become uh, something that it didn't start off to be. It's now it's growing and now taking on, uh, you know, first of all, it's it's donating now to the Democratic Party, which is fine, but it's become more of a an arm of a, a, of, of a political party than it has something that's trying to achieve a, an end goal. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is what I was building towards is that I think it's been co-opted by 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 um, by the Democratic Party, frankly, and um, but also by people who have their own narrow interests. And that is like, you know, professional activists, um, you know, careerist activists. I said this, I just said this to Rob the other day. I said, it's a really interesting study in, we get to do in real time of does a movement like this actually effectuate change? We can see, you know, I, I agree with you. The only things I've seen legislatively have been these sort of localities that have decreased the funding in police forces, but I have not seen anything else that's going to make a lasting difference. Right. And where, and where are the demands for it? That's, that's the thing is that like this, like this, and this is the kind of the same thing that happened with, with the Occupy movement. And, and a lot of the people and a lot of the active, the career activists that I'm talking about now um, came from that movement. Right. And by the way, speaking of career activists, I think, I, I don't know if these people are in the same category, but it also seems to be a phenomenon of the very rich white woke crowd. Yeah, sure. So definitely. like I yeah. live in I live in West Los Angeles. So I'm surrounded by them. Like you you drive through Brentwood and you know, which is like a really high end area of LA with all rich white people, progressive you know, people who think they're progressive at least, when they're probably not. Um, you know, people who have live in gated homes and you know, there's no not a single black person in sight, but they're holding up the picket signs too. And it it, it to me, that's the vapid part of it. It's like, yeah, it's like, what are you doing? And they're the ones like, you know, spreading the anti-racist um, like reading list. Like we read White Fragility and, and, and you're going right, to be good. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. And, you know, it's it's just um, I, 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 I find it a problem that that you that you want like. So you, like you so you have white people engaged in this finally, right? You have a lot of white people interested. You mentioned it, like people, in, whether it's people in Brentwood or wherever, right? You have people actually engaged in this now. Like they're they're they 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 got all they're they're all angry about it, you know. But as I said, I didn't I don't see people using that energy to, towards you know to to further the goal of ending systemic racism and and violent policing and all this stuff. I see those people being directed to go to their room and read books and like, and, and think about how racist they are or whatever you should be, do, you should have people doing that as they're participating in move in like, you know, movement politics with demands. And what I see happening is that 
certain people are told they need to like, you know, um, take a back seat in it. And, and I get why, like, I understand like that, but it's, it, there's a little, I guess what I'm saying, what I'm saying is there's a little too much emphasis on it. Well, it's also, it's, it's pretty hypocritical to, to create an anti-racist movement that's segregationist. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know, to, you're, you're right. To a certain extent, that's, that's how it is. You know, it's, that's right. it, it, the, the approach is that, is that, yeah, it's, it's, you know, we're, we're all going to be, you know, even, even the term allyship, like ally is this big word that everybody uses, but the, the term ally implies that we're diff we're separate, we're separate entities. We're only working together now, you know, because of some certain, you know, convenience of it or like, or so, temporarily, so, so then, you know? So you are generally then against identity politics. I am, yes. It, okay. In okay. fact, I think that, I think that it's, it, it, it neuters any chance you have at, 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 at real, real, real large scale change. I, I, I really sincerely believe that. Right. So the, the second part of that question. So what you're saying is that you think that socialism could sort of curb or, or end or, or maybe just curb uh, uh, class warfare. Yeah, I think it would, because yeah. I think that you'd That's have the short. Answer. Yeah, the short answer is that you socialism would create a situation where the majority of people in this country, the, the vast majority of people, the masses see each other as 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 um, and I'm not going to use the word ally, but <laughs> as you know, they're 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 comrades. And that's a communist term. But that's what I want is where we see is where we see each other as as we're in the same camp. And and when you get to that point, all these various other divisions that were that all these other, you know, um, kind of like um, categories that were placed in, they kind of erase, uh, like they, they kind of melt away. Um, and 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 where, you know, you, you have the people together advocating for each other rather than advocating for their small piece of, of, of the little bit of pie that we're all like made to fight over if that makes sense, you know? I personally know several Bernie fans who voted for Trump in 2016. One of them actually, uh, he works at my local farmer's market. I see him every weekend. And to this day, uh, every time Trump does something out of this world crazy, I'll still go up to him and be like, what do you think of Trump now? And he'll still always say, it's still better than Hillary, which, which just floors me, right? They voted for Trump in 2016 as they thought he was sort of the lesser of two evils. Do you find any similarities between the way in which Bernie bros and Trump people think about, quote, the system? In my circles and Bernie, other Bernie bros, you know, that I know, and I know a lot. I mean, I actually live in, I live in Bernie country. I live in Burlington, so. Oh, you're in Vermont uh, right yeah, now? Yeah, I moved, I moved oh, to, cool. uh, well, I don't live in Burlington. I live in Essex Junction, which is a, like a okay. town right outside Burlington. Yeah, I know, I know Vermont well. Yeah, so, so you know. Um, yeah, For the I, listeners at home, uh, Paul is wearing both a New York Yankees hat and a New York t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a Knicks, so, it's yeah. actually a Knicks t-shirt with, it's a great, right. it's a Grateful Dead Knicks t-shirt. Amazing, yeah. nice. that's awesome. <laughs> nice. that's a good one, yeah. So, uh, I'm not really a deadhead, actually, but I do like the Grateful Dead, but I just thought the shirt was cool. But, um. Yeah, so I live in Bernie country right now, and uh, and but but even just beyond living here, like um, you know, other Bernie people in my life, you know, people that admire Bernie or you know think he's cool or voted for him or whatever, I can't say that I've encountered any that 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 would go as far as to to vote for Trump um, personally. But I know that is a thing, right? And um, I think the crossover appeal, and this and this is just shows you. Um, 
and you know, I hate to say it about the guy, but like, you know, what he did in 2016 was, you know, it was smart. He know he knew that people were frustrated with 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 the system, you know, with the with the establishment, you know. And I think those are the establishment is a real thing. Um you know, whether it's the Democratic establishment or the the Republican establishment or whether you think maybe that's you know, some people view it as just the establishment. And I think maybe I fall into that camp. Um, so I get, I think that that's where the crossover appeal comes from, is that people just having a, a level of frustration with 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 the government being um, unresponsive to things that they, that they, you know, struggles they have in their lives or things yeah, that they... Yeah, he's an outsider. Right, exactly. And I think that was right. the appeal of him. And I think that to to someone who really doesn't, hasn't really... You know, like I think Bernie has an appeal to to people who aren't necessarily, you know, socialists, you know, or or people who don't or, or people who really, frankly, aren't even really particularly political. You know, if that makes sense, you know, they they want they, they maybe are willing to participate in terms of like, you know, I'm going to vote and stuff like that. But maybe they, you know, like the, the, the particulars and the specifics they are not like wonks on like even like a mildly wonky. I think most people are like that. Most people are not like the three of us here right now who are like engaged in this stuff. I think most people are just going about their daily lives. And when it comes time to an election, they sort of look at whoever the best candidate is in their mind. They'll maybe do a little bit of research. You know, another thing I've heard from from Bernie people about Trump and the crossover thing, some people were predicting in the beginning that he that that Trump was secretly this New York liberal. And that he was he was a he was faking being a conservative, and they have been very disappointed. I still don't think Trump is a conservative, but he has governed his administration has governed more conservatively than virtually any administration, definitely any administration in our lifetime. But you don't know if he had found a home in the Democratic par uh, Party, it he would have been, been a Democrat too. And I and I honestly I think that that was like a toss of a coin. I think it could have gone either way. Yeah, you know I don't agree. I don't disagree with you, Justin. I think you're right. I think I think he could have found. Uh, you know I I think he knew that I think uh, the the Republican Party maybe was was a better avenue for him to 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 go down before that like people forget before 2008 when barack obama became president he was a registered democrat he was and i think it's because we've talked about this on the show a lot that donald trump has no ideology of his own his ideology is only donald trump so when he was a new york businessman and I use businessman in quotes because I don't I don't really think he mu was much of one. But I think it was politically expedient for him to be a Democrat in a state where everyone's a Democrat, um, you know, and then when it was politically expedient for him to not be a Democrat anymore, he changed, you know, so he's malleable. And I think but I think the point is that I think a lot of Bernie people sort of saw that as still better than Hillary Clinton because Hillary Clinton is deeply ideological. Yeah, there's no doubt. There's no doubt about that. I think I think you're right about that. Sort of what you were talking about establishment versus non-establishment. And my ne my next question sort of leads into that because you've you've we've seen this expressed by you on social media a little bit that you don't find a lot of distinctions between the Democratic and Republican Party. So how do you view the Democrats of having failed the American public? And do you see both parties as the same, which you sort of answered a little bit? The, the difference, the differences between the two parties, in my opinion, are just tactical overarching goals of American foreign policy, there's really not much difference between Republicans and, and Democrats. It's just how we go about those things is what I've seen. And um, it, that, that's pretty consistent, I think.
Um, and the and the other big issue is on the relationship of the parties with with big business and 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 lobbyists exactly and the donor class. You know they may they may have different alliances, but the at the end of the day, they're both pulled by entities that are not the people. I'm guessing exactly is what you're saying. right. Yeah. That's exactly right. They're they're both pulled by. That's a perfect way of putting it by entities that are not the people. There's a segment of the of the left that I think you are a part of that sort of sees Republicans and Democrats in the exact same light. They're all fruit of this corrupt, poisonous system that that you know was was started at the you know you could start at the root of it and it was all corrupt so the only way to fix it is to sort of tear the entire thing down again again the solution to that being an old 80 year old <laughs> socialist is always the weird part to me but i understand where the sentiment comes from is what i'm saying like i i i have a lot of friends who hate both the democrats and the republicans and literally see them as the exact same so with that with that being said is Joe Biden better than Donald Trump? Or is this, again, just a two establishment candidates going head to head? And, you know, is, is it there no difference to you? I think Joe Biden is better than Donald Trump. Yes, I do. But for me, he's still bad. <laughs> so so whether that's something to get behind is the, is the issue for me. Now, it's, it's never in it. For me, it's never an issue of is he better? Yeah, you know, he's better. Like, but. Um, Still bad and hard for me to be able to rally myself to to do any sort of, you know, campaigning or donating to that or even to, you know, tell people to 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 vote for him. I, I, I can't do it. <laughs> like, but you are going to vote for it if not in Vermont. If I lived in if I lived in a state where 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 I, where it was like you know swing state or something like that, one hundred percent, I'm voting for Joe Biden. There's no doubt about it. I know the state's going to go blue. I'm I, so I'm I'm either not going to vote uh, in for president in this election. I'll vote for I'll vote down ballot or you know I don't know if I want to vote green. It's I don't. I don't really have a lot of. Um, you know, I voted for Stein less in 2016, but the Green Party for me doesn't really get it. I want Trump to lose. I want him gone. And uh, but the problem I have with it is that it validates, like you know, it, it's unfortunate that it has to be this way. I need. I we need Trump gone. I want him gone. But Biden winning validates the establishment. You know, uh, the Democratic establishments position on like you know and this isn't just about bernie you know like i i think he i think that you know he was robbed in a lot of ways speaking of bernie uh what do you think about his uh endorsement of biden he's been i mean a lot more uh passionate about it than he was with hillary i mean he said the other day that he thinks biden's going to be the most progressive president since fdr I mean, does that disappoint you in any way, or do you agree with him? Or? I'm not disappointed by Bernie. He's doing what he's got to do. He's a sitting senator. He's um he's got a ton of political capital that he's accumulated with um with his with both his presidential runs, but particularly this one. I think that there was a you know he represents the base of the party, whether anybody wants to admit that or not. Not supporting Biden the way he's been would be, in my view, uh, forfeiting that 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 capital and although he should really stop stop saying that uh, or at least uh verbalizing that sentiment because people who are uh, in the middle on the fence he's not helping them at all 
Well, well, CJ, uh, Justin, I think we di- we actually disagree on this point. We never really talked about this, you and I. But I think Biden doesn't need Trump voters to win. He just doesn't. And th- they're not going to vote for him anyway. So he does need Bernie voters, though. He does. So I think, I think it is kind of smart for for him to project himself as being a, a more progressive guy than he is just for winning the election. That's fair. The people that are going to sit home that are on the far left, uh, that would be a way to get them to the vote, to the uh, ballot. Booth. Right. And, so, and some of them are, are still going to sit home. But, you know, like but the vast majority are going to are going to vote for Biden. You know, that's the, like pe- people see this is another thing that's wildly exaggerated, in my opinion, this this uh, this idea, even in 2016, that that Bernie voters were like, you know, revolted and didn't vote for Hillary in, in sufficient numbers. But if you look at the percentages, it's not out of it's not out of the ordinary, the amount. I think it was something like, what was it, like 12 percent, I think, of Bernie supporters. Yeah, everyone has anecdotal evidence of friends of theirs that didn't, but it doesn't mean it was right. Historically, yeah. it, it wasn't like, oh, my God, there was such a high percentage of this guy's voters didn't vote for the eventual nominee. You know, in fact, in fact, the real outlier is 2008, according to some studies. There's one study that that suggests that 25 percent of Clinton supporters from the 2008 primary voted for McCain, which is an extraordinary number. You know, like um, uh, and, you know, the Sanders supporters weren't anywhere near that. Like I said, I think it's something like 12 percent or something in 2016. I think it'll be higher this time because not not the not the not the number of people that didn't vote for Biden. I think. I think I think it'll be lower the percentage that don't vote for him or stay home because there's such a motivation to right to rid ourselves of Trump, you know. So there's the motivation to rid ourselves of Trump, but then there's also the fact that whatever you think of Biden, he is still more likable than probably the least likable politician in history after Donald Trump, which was Hillary Clinton. Um, yeah, I mean Hillary is just a wholly unlikable person for whatever reason. Um, and I think she was just as hated on the left as she is on the right. She just, people don't like her. You know, by, like Biden's got a lot of in his past too, but like, you know, he's, he's just seen as like this, you it know, wasn't jolly as publicly old facing. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. It's, it's not harmless you know, old codger. Yeah. That's, that's, that's how people see him, you know? And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think that'll come through with, um, I think there's going to be a lot of Bernie supporters who deliver and actually vote for him, you know? I'm not gonna as long as I'm here, but um, you know, as I said, it's a, my I have my reasons for that. I just think that I I don't I don't I don't care to validate the establishment of the party. That that's 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 really all it comes down to for me. But you know, it, it, it's an interesting point that Rob brings up, and I I, I have been saying I the reason he said it is because I've been texting him for the last two weeks, going like, gosh, Biden should just stop talking, stop talking about policies, stop talking about joining up with AOC, like. And and I think you just voiced his reason for doing so, which was interesting to me, and I, ha- I hadn't thought about it. But to to grab the Bernie voters is an interesting thought. So, Paul, when you hear him talking about joining up with AOC on what was it, the environmental spending, and um, the and new, cutting carbon, new deal and yeah, stuff exactly, like and and speaking about these issues, does that interest you? Does that perk your ears up? Uh, it perks my ears up, yes. But I, I um, I'm gonna have to see it before I believe it. Is the thing. Um, you know, like I th- listen. There's some potential with um, with uh, with a uh, with a Biden administration, right? To move in to move in directions that people like me will be like very pleased with. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think that at the end of the day, the the status quo view on things will win out again um, because those 
because those voices are very powerful. And uh, not that AOC isn't powerful or that Bernie isn't, but it's just I don't think we've made the we haven't you know um, we haven't like jammed the wedge in far enough for our. It's not there yet, I don't think. And I think that I think he's going to come around on certain things. Like I think he's he seems like he's really serious about uh, uh, making community college um, free, that that kind of thing. I think maybe even more than community college. And college uh, student loans too. He taught you talked about he might forgive that. I mean, who knows? Uh, I think the healthcare system is going to change. I, I mean, yeah, I mean he I supports a public option, is, right? So like, I mean, we'll see if that happens. You know, I don't know, but I think also it's very important to see who he picks for. This could be the first election in a long time where the VP pick has a significant impact because if he does go with somebody a little more progressive, a woman, um. He is old enough where we could realistically only see him, uh, you know, serving one term and then handing it over to someone who can really usher in a new progressive era like FDR did. I mean, who if knows? he survives the one term, if he survives the one term. That's true. He's pretty old. Very last quick question. If you had to put a percentage on the election. Who do you think is going to win? I mean, these poll numbers, I mean, it just looks like... They, you couldn't trust them last election. I feel like you can't trust in this election. Right. So I think it's going to be closer. I think it's going to be a lot closer than these polls are indicating for sure. But I think I think Biden's going to win. I think he's going to win. I Because I, cause I think my thing is that I think Trump has just totally melted down in the face of multiple crises. And I don't think that... Uh, I, think, I don't think he can recover from that. Well, dude... Thank you so much for coming on the show. We we you know we yeah, could so sit much here fun. and talk for yeah, another you. five hours about the socialism stuff. And yeah, this but this was great because you're the first guy we've had you know from the lab who's openly leftist and socialist, and you believe in what you believe, and I think that's great. Uh, and yeah, it's good good conversation. But willing to sit down and and have those ideas challenged is something I find is at a minimum these days. So we really appreciate this this as we say all the time the civil discourse. And the ability to sit down and talk about these ideas and have backing to these ideas and, you know, be able to follow it with statistics like we talked about in the last episode. It was great. And, and it was a, a really uh, it was a, it was a fun time. We appreciate you being being willing to uh, open your ideologies up for for our questions. Yeah, and I appreciate appreciate you guys having me on. This has been a really I had a good time I had a great time, actually. And uh, yeah, it's good to be able. I mean, you know, we don't agree, obviously, on on these things, but. We, you know, we engage respectfully and it was a good time. And uh, I'd love to come back on if you absolutely. want to. Absolutely. No one, no one ever calls anyone yeah. an idiot. So that it's a success in my book. Yeah. <laughs> Not once. We did it. All right, man. We accomplished See, it's possible. It's possible. It is possible. <laughs> Thank you again, cool. Dave, for coming on. Cool. Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you, guys.